Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Bond by Numbers. This the first bonus episode of our series. Uh, what we're going to be doing here in these bonus episodes is looking down the literary gun barrel, if you will, of the Ian Fleming stories, the James Bond stories as we know and love them, those that corresponded to the films that we have already reviewed. So we'll be looking every six episodes or so, doing a little investigation of the source material these bonus episodes will be based on conversations that Josh and I have already had during a previous podcast. Josh, you want to say a few things about these bonus episodes and, and what they're going to be like? I'm sure those who are listening to our podcast um, regarding the James Bond films um, are probably are curious about that section, that um, segment, I should say, that um, Scott's been doing so beautifully of uh, the background on Ian Fleming's writing on and, and uh, reading a passage from the novel, um, bringing some context to the literary James Bond as opposed to the cellular. So uh, we're going to be examining the Fleming adaptations um, that we that that we have been doing. So I, I think here is is a way for you, the the the, the audience, to discover James Bond, the, the literary character, um, and not just the film version that you're already familiar with. Our goal is to try to probably get you know six novels into one episode, but it really depends upon how many remaining novels are to be adapted in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Like the first episode is going to be jam packed. I mean, we have here the Living Daylights, Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, Goldfinger, Quantum of Solace, Diamonds Are Forever, and Casino Royale. So that's a pretty loaded rogues gallery of uh, James Bond novels to go through there. And yes, Quantum of Solace was actually a James Bond novel, believe it or not. That was a story. Yeah, short story. A yeah. short story. It's not even really a novella. It's, it's a, it's a clear-cut short story. It's a clear-cut short story. Yes, it is. And we did talk about that in our episode. And so essentially what we're looking to do here is just offer you guys some bonus features and some bonus content to uh, what we're doing with the films. Obviously, we've got this great system set up where we're having a lot of fun with the random selection of our roulette wheel. But the the literary side of things is the side that Josh and I have already covered. We did a retrospective on these books just a couple of years ago, so a lot of this material is still fresh. And what we're going to do is go go through the archives, pick out about 10 or 15 minutes from each of our conversations on those stories, and put them together in a really, hopefully, uh, an entertaining and an informative listening experience. So we're going to look at publication information, and we'll share a little bit of our opinions uh, as a starter point for reviews but we're not going to uh, belabor the points too much, and we're certainly not going to share our full episodes on those, but we're just going to condense what we did in that series, looking down the literary gun barrel into, like Josh says, uh, a jam-packed bonus feature for you guys about every six films or so through this series, and that's why we're starting with this one. Now, as you've probably figured out by this stage in listening to our show, uh, Bond by Numbers is all about the amateur touch and feel. We don't spend, you know, we have got no producers. We don't have expensive software. We're, we're just a bunch of guys talking about Bond and, and trying to share some of that enthusiasm with you. And back when we were doing these episodes on the literary James Bond, the Ian Fleming novels, as you'll notice, there's a, a great number of differences in the audio quality. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, you can certainly understand the conversations, but some of them are much better recorded than others. And that has to do with where we were at the time and what kind of computer we had access to and, and how our mics were working. And sometimes Skype wouldn't cooperate. So, you know, the audio stands for itself. And hopefully the content of the show will meet, if not exceed your expectations and forgive us our little technological problems with recording. I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, looking down the literary gun barrel one of four, I guess you could say, Josh. Yes, absolutely. 
one of four. So we hope you enjoy. We are going to rate each of the 14 Fleming novels according to our own rating system, our own devised formula, which statistically will give us an index that will help us in ranking at the end of the series all of the Bond books and coming to some summative discussion about which ones we enjoyed the best, the least, and somewhere in between. So that ranking system uh, is represented by the acronym ANGLE. And so towards the end of our installments, we're going to ask each other, what's the ANGLE? And the ANGLE stands for what, Josh? Do you remember off the top of your head? A, adversary. Right. That's where we're going to talk about the villains, the henchmen. We'll give a ranking out of five for the adversary. N stands for narrative, how the story's plot works, how its pacing and its style uh, kind of characterize the reading. G? Girls. Female characters. Now, I've always had a bit of an objection to the, the Bond girls thing. I always found it's a little more pubescent than it needs to be. But for the sake of having an acronym that means something, I had to go with a G word. Yes. We, we, want, we just want to say to, you know, to, to the more discerning crowd, we refer to, when we say girls, we mean women, because these are women, not girls. Correct. Thank you. L, locales. The settings, the locations that Bond visits in his story, or indeed where the story is set. And um, one of the things, Josh, that your introduction made quite clear is Fleming's work as a travel journalist. He writes locations very well, and that is a big part of the Bond formula. And finally, E? Equipment. So moving on then, now uh, we're going to go to the Living Daylights. Now we open with Bond. He's making some sharpshooters at Bisley. Look like a bunch of kids playing cowboys and, alien and Indians. I, I almost said cowboys and aliens. Wow. Okay. Cowboys and Indians. Daniel Craig was that. in that though. He was in that movie. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. At the shooting range. Uh, we do have enemy aliens in here, I guess. Um They'd be jealous of his good looks and his crack shooting. Once he gets a few rounds off the souped-up Winchester, uh, he books it to Berlin for his assignment. In classic Fleming tradition, we get the time um, in between with Bond learning of, the, of 272 and MI6 man deep within the Soviet rockets and atomics agency. He's about to make the dash from East Berlin to West Berlin. The only word is out of the defection amongst the KGB. So... Uh, Intel says a sniper known as Trigger plans to make, quote-unquote, strawberry jam out of the defector, quote-unquote, uh, who is, of course, our MI6 man, 276. M, he's cold as ice, orders Bond to take out Trigger. Bond arrives in Berlin, where by taking a taxi from the airport, heads down to the Zimmerstrasse, just across the river from the Soviet sector, the no-man's land where 272 is going to make his dash. Amidst the rubble of dead Nazi Berlin, Bond pulls up in front of a six-story apartment block, the only one of the bombed-out skyline overlooking the field of battle. Tanger A, the head of the uh, station, uh, has his number two man, Captain Paul Sender, a by-the-book Boy Scout, waiting for Bond. The apartment is laid out to worry about the, to, uh, for a three-day siege. There's alcohol, coffee, the basic amenities. Uh, mi minimal alcohol. There's that um, Dimple Hague there, I think, and that's it, right? Bond manages to get some whiskey in there down the road, but just a Dimple Hague for now. So getting a view of the area from the closed blinds, Bond starts to worry about the assignment, but after popping some pills, he sleeps like a log. 
He heads out into modern Berlin for a cup of joe, a walk in the park, and some good eats, and a Lohenbrow to wash it all down. He comes back to the apartment slash foxhole with his Winchester ready to go, prop the name to take out the sniper. Oh, one important detail. While Bond is scoping the frontier, he sees a gaggle of female musicians tearing down the walkway to the conservatory. There's a pretty girl who is lobbying a cello. This causes Ian Fleming to make a weird comment about his half-sister. Anyway, something in between about holding cellos between their legs or something like that, and should they ride side saddle or... If you yeah, recall no, that, no, it's it's a lot more gruesome. It's not. It's, it's a little more in your face than that. But we'll talk about it later. Yeah. Anyway, what could this girl that Bond has taken a fancy to, Sender doesn't like girls apparently, have to do with this story? Well, he manages to capture the sniper in one of the dark windows of the Soviet Ministry, but only sees the weapon due to due to trigger his stealthy ways. Uh, sorry, due to trigger stealthy ways. Uh, it's an AK. It's an AK. So the KGB wants to make it messy. 272 doesn't make a dash that night. Bond gets up and tours Berlin, art tourists, uh, art galleries, museums, hard rock cafe, the whole shebang. It makes you wonder how that kind of cool looking single dude slash women tourist you see walking around, you know, all these tourist sites are in fact later going to splatter someone's brains that same evening. So the next time you're, you know, you're out and, you know, you're out traveling somewhere in Europe or something, you see this casual person walking around and just looking at stuff and, yeah, that could very much be a guy who's going to blow someone's brains out later on. You're right, but you don't have to be traveling in Europe for that to be a possibility. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. No. Just making a connection to the whole uh, Cold War situation, though. Of course. Um, you know, it's just like loud brow and then a headshot. You know, it's the best chaser. <laughs> anyway, Bond gets back and is annoyed by Sender's pacing and taking in his torture porn novel and getting blasted with whiskey despite, you know, Sender's whinging about protocol. Bond doesn't give a flying frack to use. I don't want to use the really the F word too much here, you know, for some listeners. So I use the Battlestar Galactica uh, euphemism, frack. Bond wants to see the pretty chalice sure, again. I'm, I'm sure all the geeks are thankful for that. Oh, I'm sure they are. And, and Granny would get the reference as well. So No doubt, because she's a big geek herself. <laughs> exactly. You know, Bond, he wants to see the pretty chalice again. And he does see the chalice again. But chalice equals trigger. And... And, you know, and we're not talking about, you know, the, the famous horse of the Lone Ranger either here. Now, before I continue here, I will know that this story was written prior to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I believe. So yeah. so I can't really say that the reason why Bond doesn't take girl out is because of that, those past events. So I was kind of looking at the Living Daylight as a story taking place after uh, the, the, the initial Bond sweep. So I had a different interpretation of it in, in, in that regard. But even though he maims her with, with, uh, by taking out the, uh, the rifle mount and probably half her arm, uh, this will probably lead to her being sent to Siberia anyway for reassignment from her away from her happy pseudo-slash-Western-Soviet life in East Berlin. And they're probably not a very nice fate in the end. So maybe uh, he should have taken so. her head off. <laughs> yeah, because she's just going to die anyway for scumming up the job. Exactly, exactly. Much like... Fordenstein would have probably had what happened will probably happen to her after Melanowski gets sent back. Yeah, exactly. So 272 managed to make it across to the light side, but Sender says sorry, not sorry. I but I told on you to Tangare. Uh, Double Seven doesn't really seem to give a rat's ass. No, he and really that's... he doesn't. In, in fact, at this point, he's curiously looking. It seems for an excuse to drop his double O and you know he he seems to not. He kind of feels fed up. I think with. Um, with working as a double O and I think he probably just wants a different job. I'm kind of curious as to like, 
what respect, you know, like Fleming was in the mindset when he wrote this story about what he was, was he kind of like writing the story as kind of a way to just, he wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with the Bond character at this juncture. Like, Maybe. I don't know. This would fit very nicely in between Honor Majesty's Secret Service and You Only Live Twice. Exactly. It would have almost been a, it would, it would almost been a better than You Only Live Twice, to be honest with you. Well done, by the way. I quite enjoyed that, though I stayed quiet. I was just enjoying what you were saying. And, um, you know, you talk about the cellist and you talk about the way the KGB are using, um, just as Bond is using the um, the backfiring car as a, as a prompt to sort of um, wash out the gunshot when it occurs, KGB are right. using the sort of ambience of the, uh, of the conservatory. Yeah. yeah. And they're playing Borodin's Prince Igor. And I've got some of this for you here. So as... I don't know if Fleming was listening to this as he was writing or if he was imagining what would have been a, you know, an Eastern Bloc type of sensibility at the time. Anyway, here's um, here's a little snippet from the dance of the Polovstian maidens. This is what's cited in the story. So if you can picture this sounding softly over the quadrangle where Bond is waiting for his target to appear, um, <clears throat> which is played out very similarly in the film version, as I think you may have already said, I want you to also listen to this, which might be a little more familiar to you. This is the um, a little selection from Act 2 of Prince Igor. I think you'll recognize the theme when it emits itself in just a few seconds.
Now, I understand that we don't need to listen to three minutes of Russian opera right now, but uh, for me personally, and we've had a lot of music and we've had a lot of name dropping and a lot of different kind of aesthetic, atmospheric inclusions in this series. And I love the way that the simple setting Fleming you know, creates here in this story melds with what would be, after three days of stakeout, a pretty monotonous, repetitive practice-slash-performance of Borodin's music. And yeah. I think I think that this is really, really good writing. This is the type of stuff that, to me, is, um, is standout in good literature. And Fleming, we don't always think of as a great literary writer. Like, he's not up there with the best. And I'm not saying, throw some opera in your writing and you're going to be great. But I love the way that this juxtaposes the seriousness, or perhaps ignoring the libretto of the opera, it juxtaposes the discomfort, at least, the, the beautiful melodies, they juxtapose the discomfort of what Bond is sitting in this sweaty Kalishnikov, or so, sorry, sitting with this, this sweaty sort of um, hood over Winchester rifle. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's... Um, I just think this is fabulous. We're in a black hood, like we're in a hood over his head, with like just for yeah. eyes in his mouth, and uh, and he's you know, all sweaty and he's uncomfortable, and he can't drink, and he's there with this guy Spender, or who's just a, or Sender, who's just an absolute dickhead. <laughs> and it's it's to me this is um, the standout story in the um, in this in in the book, um, and this is up there with my best short stories, at least in terms of rating. And it's not because opera's there, but. I've like I've always said, and I've said so here on the show that Fleming's writing is is really powerful and it's really engaging when he's trying to denote simple action and detail. Like Bond took off his coat and tie, put two sticks of chewing gum in his mouth, donned the hood. The lights were switched off by Captain Sender, and Bond lay along the bed, got his eye to the eyepiece of the sniper scope, gently lifted the bottom edge of the curtain back and over his shoulders. Now dusk was approaching, but otherwise the scene, a year later to become famous as Checkpoint Charlie, was like a well-remembered photograph. The wasteland in front of him, bright river on the frontier road, the farther wasteland on, on the left, and the ugly square block of the house de Ministre, with its light and dark windows. Bond scanned it slowly, moving the sniper scope with the rifle by means of the precision screws on the wooden base. It was all the same, except that now there was a trickle of personnel leaving and entering the ministry. Like, small details... You know, punctuated sentences, regular intervals. Like I like this writing from from Fleming. I find it's it's authentic and it's his voice. You know, I mean, yes. uh, uh, you know, a complex sentence. I'm not trying to get too stylistic here because, I'm, in fact, I don't know that I have the vocabulary to. But I I find that the unique voice of Fleming's writing comes when he's detailing these these scenes with just simple, direct, purposeful sentences. You know, and there's another very Hemingway esque in that way. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, I guess there's not... Yeah, there's a certain kinship with it, but... Anyway, I'm just going to go out there and say that uh, this story, following your good plot summary, is the best in the collection. I went... Uh, Agreed. Four, I went 4.5 for Adversaries and Allies. I love the I, I love the, the difference, the contrast between he and Sender. Um, he's very much a by-the-book guy, and, and Bond notices his school tie and, and his teetotaler attitude and stuff like that, and... The narrative, I thought, was fantastic. This was really good writing, and I sensed that Fleming was really interested in this stakeout, and, you know, it had a payoff to me. Like, even though it might cost Bond his double O number from fudging up this mission, I don't think that that's bad character writing. Like, it shows a, no. a certain complexity in the character that maybe we haven't seen all the time in these short stories. I went five for narrative. Um, I thought the writing was really good. 
Bond's infatuation with the girl is also quite believable given that he's on this ridiculous painful stakeout in a city he doesn't really want to visit at a time he doesn't really want to be there but he's doing it almost as like a you know because he's the best shot and and he's the one who has to do it sometimes his double o means this is the kind of stuff you got to do girls uh, although she's not really a, a girl per se bond's infatuation with her makes her a figure in this story and i like her yes. descriptions when she's described and that's a four for me i also went four for locations because although we don't move around a lot this is good setting. It is effectively rendered. You get the window frames, the color of the drab paint and wallpaper. You get the stone rubble on the floor, you, or sorry, in the ground outside. You get the good yes. description of the opposing side of uh, across the courtyard. You get really good stuff here. And yes. I also like, I like that Bond flies out, you know, just to get a break of routine. And he tries to cram his afternoon with as much culture and food as possible. Um, I like it's that almost stuff. like he's trying to remember his humanity and he's part of the human yeah. experiment, you know, totally, and then he has yeah. to go back to his cold room. And then and then at that moment, and it kind of worked for the story, in my opinion, uh, just because I'm going to I'm just going to go on here is, is that when he gets to the, point, the realization that the trigger is actually this pretty girl he's been looking at. I think all of that is necessary to uh, compound his decision not to kill her. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That is a good point. Because she, and she's also taking part in the culture. And remember, there's a whole comment that he mentions about how, you know, like these girls are, these Soviet girls are, you know, talking like a bunch of regular school girls, you know, going to the conservatory, walking with confidence in their stride. Like, are Soviet people actually happy? You know what I mean? Mm, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's like, it's almost like he's questioning the, 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 the propaganda and the type of writing yeah. that Fleming, <laughs> that, that two-dimensional, uh, one-dimensional writing that Fleming, you know, provides these characters uh, in, in the past. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I agree with you very much. This story has everything for me that I like in a short story, regardless of whether it's Fleming or not. I find it suspenseful. It's taut. Once Bond does, as you say, discover the identity, you're wondering if, she's, if he's going to pull the trigger again and kind of take her out properly. Um, but he doesn't, and that shows a certain weakness in his character that has jived with things that we've seen before. It is, after all, a weakness around women, and we've seen that before. It's it's one of his character flaws, and that's a good thing because heroes need to have flaws, and he has one. And it's consistent, you know, it's consistent through the series. And I just thought that, as I said earlier, you know, the, the intertextuality with the music and the atmosphere, um, I liked it. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think it's the best example of what Fleming does best. Yeah, well, good. We're in agreement. I went four for the um, equipment as well um, because it is consistent and steady throughout. And you get the, as you've already intimated, you get the, uh, or pointed out, you get the, the beer and you get the cigarettes. And there's all the kind of detail to attention here. And and it's believable because Bond is looking at everything. He's stuck within an apartment that he can't really do much in. And so when, when he does get out, he soaks it all up. And there's a lot of equipment in use here that is simple stuff, but nevertheless useful. I went 21.5 for this story. It really surprised me. But 4.5, 5, one of my few fives in the entire series. 4, 4, and 4. It's 21.5 for me on The Living Daylights. So I really liked it. I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, as you, Scott. This was definitely my favorite story of the collection. It's also my favorite, I think, Ian Fleming short story, and probably one of my favorite Ian Fleming stories, actually, in, in this respect. Um, it was kind of, to me, it encapsulated the sort of realistic spy writing that I was kind of respect, I was expecting with Ian Fleming's novels prior to this project. So looking at uh, the adversaries and allies here, or allies and adversaries, however we word it, um, I gave it a strong 4.5, as you did. 
Um, one part of the allies I want to mention, and I think this just goes to just to the, the overall development of M as a really multifaceted character who is subtly developed throughout the series, is the moment where M isolately asked Bond to kill the sniper. You know, he just cuts right through the bullshit. Narrative, I'm I'm with you again. I got 4.5. Another great day in the life, uh, a greater day in the life of vignette of James Bond. More exciting, more tense and property of a lady. The twist with the girl being the sniper was well set up. It wasn't telegraphed too too early to, to be insulting. Um, the details of the MI6 operation from London to Bisney to Berlin, it shows an efficient machine while contrasting with the scarred psyche of Bond vis-a-vis -vis the girl and his own feelings towards his job. Um, I did... I had some notes about, you know, this was post-Vesper, even post-Tracy, but I, I'll just recant that and just say this is just a world-weary bond at some point, you know, wanting to, uh, just trying to escape from the world that he was in. And it's kind of an honest telling from Ian, Ian, Ian Fleming's perspective that we get outside of the traditional square-jawed, you know, dipple-chinned hero, you know? The girl, I gave it 3-2. I think uh, Adversaries and Allies covers her role in the story. Um and I like the idea of, you know, her being confident and happy and Bond being surprised that, you know, she's living in Soviet land, in Red Land, so to speak. And here she is, you know, enjoying time with her friends and um, all these other girls as well, just going to conservatory, living their life, finding some happiness in the quote unquote bleakness of their Soviet existence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Location five. What really drove the story was the depiction of East and West Berlin, the westernized former Nazi capital with its parks and cafes and the bombed out war zone between East and West along the Simmerstrasse, evoking the perfect Cold War atmosphere from the black melts of the government building where the sniper is to appear and take out the uh, 272 to the single apartment building that Bond is hiding out with the curtains turned down over a weedy no man's land of rubble ruins and the river with its bright lights. Um, that whole was so evocative and vivid uh, that I, I just thought that it was just like a strange kind of love letter that Fleming wrote to like the Cold War in that one aspect right there. I definitely um, feel that location was a strong part of building the atmosphere of the story uh, as a part to the other things that made the story so wonderful as well. Equipment, four. I got the jacked up Winchester sniper rifle. Uh, the resources at play that they use, the use of the apartment building uh, and, the, and, and the apartment itself, the use of the car engine to muffle the sniper fire, um, all of that. Well done. talking about Under Magic Secret Service today mm -hmm. and I, earlier in the beginning when we were doing our intro I, I mentioned that I'll be looking at Kitzbühel. Yeah, Kitzbühel, yeah. And uh, Kitzbühel, Austria in the Tyrolean Alps basically is where Ian Fleming was sent um, as a young man as a finishing school by his mother. Um, as, we, as you recall, his father died when, when uh, he was young and it was Eve Fleming who had to keep up the family line and, you know, keep up the keep up appearances and make sure that her son Ian would be, would get into the right schools and get with his life together. You might recall us talking about in the first episode about how, you know, she sent him to these English Eton. He, he never worked out at Eton or anything like that. He had to end up becoming, um, uh, going to le lesser boarding schools. He was still bullied. 
Um, he kind of became went from a bully nerd to a douchebag womanizer, essentially. <laughs> and that's when he started kind of being a real menace and uh, and being very kind of nonconformist to, to aristocratic society and, and, and all these things. And what his mother wanted him to do was wanted to get him into Sandhurst College so that he could get into like the military, into the naval academies, right? That was the big thing. Yeah. yeah. And to do so, she sent him to a finishing school uh, in um, in Switzerland. And while he was in Switzerland, uh, he ended up going to to, to a kind of a boys' um, therapy home in Kitzbühel, Austria. Uh, this is kind of where James Bond is born, and the town of Kitzbühel kind of feels that it's so because it was very important to Fleming's formative years. And once a year in Kitzbühel, Austria, they have the Ian Fleming Ski Challenge. And this is kind of almost like a minor con almost where um, not only is there ski, Alpine Ski Challenges in honor of Honor Magic Secret Service and Fleming's Alpine experiences, but it also um, has a celebration of Bond himself and the character and Fleming. Yeah, this is it's like a cosplay. You people go in and they and they dress as James Bond characters from the films That's and awesome. influences from the books yeah, yeah. and act out scenes and they have like film festivals and a whole bunch of stuff, right? So it just sounds like really cool and yeah. we should definitely see see if we can arrange some sort of like <laughs> special podcast from Kitzbühel, Austria. <laughs> that would be cool. Listen, um, ignoring the obvious jaws being the answer uh, because you are after all the BFG who would you like to cosplay from the Bond world? That's a good question. Maybe like the um, the Maz Mickelson Lashif, you know, with like the the, the the scar on the eye and and the tear and stuff like that, you know. That would be cool. Um, we could yeah. all we could always go as Winton Kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. As for me, um, I think I don't know. I mean, I, I think it'd be fun to try to be Goldfinger. You know, mm. I got I got some of the ginger um, villain thing going on. Absolutely. Do you have a laser, like a uh, no, or a buzzsaw, or whatever he had? No, no, and I'd need to strap a few pillows to my gut as well, because although I uh, I'm not as lean as I used to be, I'm you know I'm I'm not in any way uh, oracly endowed. <laughs> that is true. Let's just strike while the iron's hot, okay? We always start off uh, with a bit of publication information about the text, and you're going to say a few words in brief about Fleming's experience in the Alps today. Um, unless you got any particular objection, um, I'm quite keen to uh, just tell you a little bit about this publication information. You, uh, yeah, let's kind of jump in. I'm curious to see what uh, Mr. Boucher and his cohorts had to say about this seminal novel, as you were saying, in, 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 in the so-called... Uh, you know, in the Bond uh, sweep, um, okay. because as everyone knows, there's a really big event that occurs in this uh, in this novel. It, well, spoiler alert: Bond gets married. Bond loses his wife just after he gets married. So the series seems to be a building to, to this moment, and I think there's a lot of hints in all the previous books of this kind of leading up to this moment. So I think it'll be interesting to see what you know what the uh, the reaction of 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 the, of the mainstream media at, at the time thought about this change in the storyline well let's find out um april 1st 1963 this was released in the uk under jonathan cape and uh, at the time 250 limited editions were signed by fleming and now go for a pretty penny if you're a collector online ebay and whatnot 42,000 yeah. advance orders josh from the hardback first edition and 60,000 had sold out by the end of the month this was a lucrative text from the get-go i think uh it was probably 
um, advertised as a bounce back from a rather failed effort in experimental prose with The Spy Who Loved Me. And so, <laughs> and so you know, Fleming's got nothing to lose here with this one. And uh, audiences are still with him because they really wanted this book quick and fast and hard. Um, the American... He goes, he goes Besant's out in this one, that's for sure. He sure does. The American readership uh, picked up their copies in August of the same year, 63. Um, Fleming switched publishing houses for America, went from Viking to New American Library. It, uh, it might not have done a big difference to the books, but it helped out with um, getting, I think, a little bit more press in different corners. Although the, the New York press had reviewed Fleming's work before because Boucher writes for the New York Times um, this book topped the New York Times bestsellers list for more than six months and when we get to Boucher's review it'll be interesting to uh, to see or to imagine just how pissed off he must have been going into work every day <laughs> anyway. yeah, I, can ima- I can definitely imagine poor Mr. Boucher yeah poor Mr. Boucher we'll get there but yeah a couple moments ago you might have heard this That's the sound of our um, critics hard at work in 1963, working their typewriters to the bone and their fingers on their typewriters to the bone to get these reviews out. So here we go. You should should kind of slow that down just a little bit, Scott, and have it so like uh, the Anthony Boucher sound of him slamming (laughs) each key down, you know, like as he's typing, like angrily. (laughs) I <laughs> should I? Anyway, okay, let's, let's start with The Guardian. Anthony Berkeley Cox on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Not only up to Mr. Fleming's usual level, but perhaps even a bit above it. Now, The Guardian, along with its sister publication, The Observer, over here, have kind of been traditionally uh, friendly and warm to Fleming's prose. Uh, in The Observer, Maurice Richardson, a standby of ours, a critic that we go to a lot in all of our episodes, says this. A deliberate moral reformation of character. But Richardson still felt that On Her Majesty's Secret Service was, quote, certainly the best bond for several books. It's better plotted, retains its insane grip until the end. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Raymond Mortimer, writing in the Sunday Times, quote, James Bond is what every man would like to be and what every woman would like between his sheet or her sheets. Yeah, well, um, pretty throwaway comment, really, isn't it? Yeah, empty platitude there. I mean, yeah, empty platitude. You could sum up any Bond novel that way. <laughs> you really could. Uh, so, so far, we've got a neutral and two, well, no, we've got two positive reviews and uh, a comment that really doesn't have anything to do with the story. <laughs> no, that's something you see like in People magazine these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vanity Fair. <clears throat> anyway. Um, no, Vanity Fair would be a bit more classy, but. I don't know. Is it now? Today? Uh, that's true. That's debatable. Maybe when uh, the likes of Hemingway were corresponding for it, but I don't know nowadays. Anyway, yeah. I move uh, into different territory with that comment. The Times newspaper, an anonymous critic, says, On Her Majesty's Secret Service constitutes a substantial, if not quite a complete, recovery, which we presume is referring to The Spy Who Loved Me's disaster. The much, <laughs> the much exaggerated things said about sex, sadism, and snobbery should be forgotten. Instead, we need to see this as a return to the simple, indisputable fact that Mr. Fleming is a most compelling storyteller. Agreed. I agree. I agree Another positive one there. Yeah, it's a positive one there. I mean, Fleming is a good storyteller. Whether you like what he does with his words or his sentiment, he's a good storyteller. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, I, I think this idea, this comment about sex and sadism is important to, to, to consider because in our world today... Although he was given a in 2003 a rather prestigious award from the American Library, Stephen King is 
criticized as being a schlock writer of horror, when in fact, like Dickens, long before him, he's a master storyteller, and I think that sometimes gets forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of writers nowadays, I think, who are master storytellers, and because there's so many of them out there now, and because there's just like, you know, there's e-books, and then there's your yeah. there's your airport books, and et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, like everyone is just vying for recognition in the writing community so i think you get i I think a lot of people nowadays which is surprising because genre now to me when it comes to science fiction fantasy etc genre is more and more uh, accepted but but the problem is is that there are still people who have feelings that it shouldn't be and so they judge the writers based on their genre not on their actual style or their prose yeah that's a fair point and fleming um, is writing within a genre, but at the same time, some of his strokes, some of the brush strokes of his writing, I mean, they're not quite as easy to pigeonhole. Do you, do you know what I'm trying to say? No, there's, there's definitely not. I mean, you could argue, and I think we discussed this before, there's there's kind of a, 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 simpl- a Hemingway simpl- simplicity to his to, to his work. Um, he manages to, to evoke some powerful imagery and ideas in, in, one, in, one, in one paragraph sometimes, sometimes in a sentence. And yet, it, yet and sometimes, though, he can be also incredibly unsubtle at the same time, you know? Um, right. Well, the Times Literary Supplement, uh, Margarita Lasky writes this. Somehow gentler, somehow less dirty, but it really is time to stop treating Ian Fleming as a significant portent and to accept him as a good, if rather vulgar, thriller writer. Hmm. What do you make That's of that? That's kind of... It's kind of a decent kind of in-the-middle blurb. Yeah, kind of a decent in-the-middle blurb. Um... Anthony Boucher, let's see if he's in the middle. He rarely is. Boucher, uh, remember, uh, is one of our favorites. Um, I don't know if you call him an agony ant, because people don't write so much into him, but he certainly swells out the agony in terms of his New York Times review. Uh, time after time, Boucher, who is reportedly uh, a Fleming hater, um, now I don't know whether that's entirely true or not, but we do know that he was a, uh, a writer of crime fiction himself and, and maybe not as successful well, definitely not as successful as Fleming and I guess maybe had a chip on his shoulder about that well we yeah that's make... what I was going into about the whole uh, yeah typing angrily thing and whatnot ah sorry we've seen <laughs> negative reviews from him before and it's unfortunately not much different here that's um, surprising I mean given the fact that I honestly I thought that Boucher might have been a little more on board with Honor Majesty's Secret Service just because the uh, change in the narrative and in the style and whatever, but it seems like he's just seen what he wants to like. He, he's he's cherry picking to, to to field his anger, you know, or, or or his resentment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Boucher writes this simply pro forma. I must set down my opinion that this is a silly and tedious novel. It's a lazy and adequate story. My complaint is not that the adventures of James Bond are bad literature, but that they aren't good bad literature. They aren't writing bad books like they used to. It's it seems to me that he resents Fleming as being part of the genre that he wants to be part of that you know that he's aspiring to be. Mm. He doesn't want Bond. He doesn't want Fleming to fall under the you know like the Dashiell Hammett, the Raymond Chandler, the you know like he doesn't want him to fall into that category. Yeah, that's and he really true. and he doesn't like how Fleming is basically taking over this uh, this uh, genre. Um, the LA Times, Robert Kirsch writes, um, the Bond novels are harbingers of change and emphasis in fiction, which is important. A revolution in taste, a return to qualities in fiction, which all but submerged in the 20th century vogue, vogue of realism and naturalism, comparable yeah. only to the phenomenon of, of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. 
That's a very glowing review from the LA Times, and yeah, particularly absolutely. particularly in context of um, realism, realist fiction in the twenties and uh, sorry, not the twenties, in the twentieth century, and um, these books somehow bring a freshness back into um, the market of books, you know, and literature, populist literature, even for uh, a century that's been very modernist or at least the beginning part of the century that's been very modernist. If you think about writers like Hemingway and, and Ezra Pound, and you've got other American forces there like Fitzgerald, and I guess there's not a lot of fun and action in serious crime, pulp literature. and yeah. Anyway, Kirsch seems to like Fleming here in this book. Um, Time magazine, I think we'll finish with this one. Bond is threatened with what for an international cad would clearly be a fate worse than death, matrimony. Eventually, <laughs> eventually, a deus ex machina, the machine, reassuringly, is a lethal red Maserati, saves James Bond from his better self. Uh, little tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. That's Cheap it. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just a glance at the... Um, that's just a glance at the, the critics from 1963 in April who read and commented on this book when it first hit the shelves. So, Goldfinger, published the 23rd of March, 1959. Uh, its original title was The Richest Man in the World, and uh, although that was dropped, it's interesting because this is now where James Bond is, and he, he is against these huge supervillains. Perhaps Dr. No was the, the, the first of those in that sort of way. Maybe Dra Drax was the first uh, maniac. I think Dr. No was probably the first supervillain, and now we're against uh, a guy who's a hyperbolic title as the richest man in the world under that working title is really, um, I don't know, I mean, he is a supervillain, isn't he? Oh, he's a piece of work, absolutely. Well, um, this book garnered relatively positive reviews. Um, there were I was looking up, I was looking that up, yeah, I did notice that there was a, there was a share of some very positive blurbs about it. Um, perhaps some of Fleming's complexity into putting it into Bond made things a bit more interesting, and Maybe some of Bond's feelings about the changing social movements going into the '60s, maybe might have uh, pricked up some ears, who, some readers who were reading it, and they, they might have like they might have liked his attitude at that time period. They could have, they could have. Um, but regardless of the reviews, this book went straight to the top of the bestsellers list, knocking out uh, even your good buddy Doctor Zhivago. Well, well huh? Fleming knocked out Pasternak. Interesting. Probably. Well received by critics, more positive reviews than Dr. No, at the very least, number six in Fleming's series. And the novel itself was dedicated to his publisher, Fleming's publisher, Will, uh, William Plomer. Um, now, I don't know exactly how much we want to get into this. We can talk about it maybe when we look at the narrative, but some critics have really made a lot out of this, um, out of this novel in terms of thematics, as though this book is different and more complex than other Fleming stories because he tries to work on this this theme of uh, James Bond as St. George, you know, fighting a dragon. I've, I've seen that in three or four different sources that I looked at. I didn't, I mean, yes, there's obviously that part of the story where he goes on about that, but a lot of the critics that I was reading in kind of putting together this publication and reception information, they said things about the whole dragon and St. George and, and how important it was for England to win, and I, I didn't get that as much from the book. Um, 
because it only had glimpses of, of that, that mythological story. Did you pick up on any of that, and you think it's important to discuss? Uh, well, with the St. George story, I was, I was looking online and in other sources, and I did see that a lot of some people were, some literary critics were saying that what you said about the St. George parallels and whatnot, but despite, despite for that one instance where the code name that later gives Bond, uh, Santiago, right? Mm-hmm. St. James, mm-hmm. which, which I get was, was a reference of that. I think there is one reference, if I recall in Goldfinger about St. George. Yeah. Cause Bond, refers- it's like, it's, it's like a literal reference on the page. Yeah, well, he, no, he refers to himself as St. George. Yeah, that's right. Battle in the Dragon. So maybe mm-hmm. this is kind of what we're going back to of, of Bond and being this avatar for com- keeping the British end up and uh, keeping, you know, as the forerunner of the British empires in the, in the, going into the modern age, you know, where 57, that transitional period where we're getting women voting and we're getting... Uh, lesbians and homosexuals and hipster and hipsters and and you know more urban gangs more uh di- more more global diversity you know we're seeing like um colored people so to speak and we're seeing asians being betrayed and still racist terms <laughs> we'll go into that later and, and whatnot so maybe this is what it is that this this dragon uh could is this a, is this kind of like this symbolic uh boogeyman that england has to fight and bond is the knight that wields the sword and the shield you know Mm-hmm. St. George on it, I, I guess. Because St. George is also the patron saint of England as well, right? Well, yes, but that's a good way. It's a good way to analyze it. I, I mean, I, if if you think of Bond as St. George and the dragon as kind of you know the the changes and the tumult of the modern epoch, then I suppose there could be something there. I mean, that would be giving Fleming an awful lot of credit, and we would probably have to start looking at the Bond character in a little a little more deliberate focus. I can definitely see that, and I like how Fleming doesn't pull his punches with the character. Uh, you get how the character feels about the world, and he's not, a, and he's apolo- and he's not apologizing for it either. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like an honesty to Bond more so than in this novel than any other ones, I think too. Yes. Fleming isn't trying to play him safe as a as like a as a as a as a, as a dipple chin ch- hero, you know. He's playing him. He's playing him like straight, uh, and, and by by taking on his own qualities. And putting that into the character, it makes him a much more interesting individual, in, in, in my opinion. Because mm-hmm. Fleming does also give reason behind uh, w- w- with Bond's mental processes on why he thinks the way that he does. And it qualifies itself in the story, and to me anyways, when I'm reading it. Well, let's let's dig in then, just for a couple minutes, uh, into what some people said. Some of these observ- uh, sorry, some of these uh, critics we cited before here on the show. Uh, Maurice Richardson, writing in the Observer, even with his forked tongue sticking right through his cheek, Fleming remains maniacally readable. Forked tongue through his cheek. I wonder what he meant by that. Like forked tongue refers to lying, does it not, or to falsehood? Uh, or well, yes, or just something um, venomous, even. He he sees Fleming's point of view that he kind of displays in, in in the writing, and he was just and that might piss some people off, I suppose, at the time. Yeah, I think so. But but at the same time, he's still imminently readable, basically. Yeah. Um, Roy Perrot writing in the Manchester Guardian: Goldfinger will not let Bond's close admirers down. Fleming is again at his best when most sportingly Buchanish, as in John Buchan, as in the motoring pursuit across Europe. Uh, he also adds that it's hard to put down, but some of us wish we had the good taste just to try. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, the Times newspaper, an anonymous critic, wrote that it sounds and is fantastic. The skill of Mr. Fleming is to be measured by the fact that it's made not to seem so. And I, I like that comment. That's a good point, yeah. It reminds me of something that Fleming himself said, himself said that we discussed on the on a previous episode. He was talking about how his plots are, that you know, they move towards the improbable but not the impossible. There's a natural progression in, in them and the motivations of the characters and the actions that they, that, that, that they take. And he tries to do his best, like... He takes what's in the what what he sees possible in the physical world, and he utilizes it. And we'll just finish off uh, with the Times Literary Supplement review. Uh, just a little excerpt here from Michael Robson, who says that, and I think this kind of jives with what you and I feel. A new bond has emerged from these pages. An agent more relaxed, less promiscuous, less stagily muscular than of yore. So the a bond that's not that's not being portrayed is trying too hard to be like this. Doc Savage or Michael Spillaney, like, uh, mm. you know, like uh, over the top, like a uh, crime fighting character, you know, like the comic book aspect seems to be wearing out. And now it's there, there's much more of an idea of an actual character here, uh, despite, you know, being sort of a mouthpiece for the author's feelings. But maybe being this mouthpiece for the author's feelings, it's very possible that this is what really made the character stand out more yes. in this particular novel. I think I think you make a, an excellent point there. If this is Fleming using Bond as a vehicle to more perhaps than ever before um, speak his mind about things or you know code or smokescreen his feelings about the world around him and then then yeah I think this is maybe where some of the character's depth is starting to emerge that we maybe haven't, we, we haven't seen before. Um, the Stooge mob bosses are all right as well, but Goldfinger is definitely the most sophisticated of the Bond villains that we've met so far. I really like yeah, him. Yeah, he is a piece of work. I enjoyed every every passage with Goldfinger. He yeah. was just like, you just want to hate this guy so much, you know? That's right. Um, adversaries and allies, on, on balance for me, you know, I went um, I went uh, four out of five. Four, yeah, I, I was four or five as well, Scott. I really felt that um, the Goldfinger, Oddjob, the, and, and various little assorted uh, villains within the story were really colorful and interesting, even though they were small moments. Uh, I kind of saw Pussy Galore as more like a colorful antagonist, more so than as a person who determines the, the battle between good versus evil. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I was definitely on key with all the villains here, and I found that the, that, uh, the Pussy as like a female love interest type character she was definitely underdeveloped in that regard. Yes. And I also found Jill and Jill didn't have a chance to be, um, was more of a plot device. And Tilly, who seemed to be more of something, uh, even more so than the film version offered me, uh, ended up being, again, a plot device and as a kind of a moral lesson that Fleming was trying to teach us. Yes. So yes. I give four out of five on the cool. basis of Goldfinger and his, er, and, and his ilk alone. Yeah, and I feel like I would, I mean, I feel like Goldfinger and Oddjob and, you know, even these little guys like Smithers and DuPont, they contribute to this idea of, it, of, of being a deserving five. But I can't pull away from the fact that the girls and maybe the mob bosses who are supposed to be in there for plot development and importance, they're just not. And that's got to bring it down for me as well. So, yeah, good. Um, you know, in terms of the girls, I think we've said what we had to say about them. I mean, Pussy Galore is really interesting, but she's underdeveloped. Um, Tilly Solms is just a lesbian wallpaper. You know, she could have been more interesting if she was the girl that was developed because she was the one who was always with Bond to have the relationship. Like, she was the Galabrand, you know, that could have been. 
Yeah, uh, exactly. But, I, I I also feel too is that I think I think he wanted to throw a plot twist with her lesbianism, and I think it just got and her character got lost in that plot twist because it didn't quite connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you might be right. Uh, maybe he wasn't quite sure of how he wanted to sell it out at the end. I mean, in terms of Pussy's uh, lesbianism, I thought it would have been far more interesting if she didn't turn, you know, but, you know, if, if she had just remained an ally, maybe, and, uh, but at the same time, maybe maybe it's just sex, you know, like, maybe that's all it is for her, it's just sex, but I, I find it hard to believe. The end of the book is really is really quite offensive in some ways, because here they are on their friggin' weather ship, and she says, you know, um, she gets right into bed with them after being so hard with all these other guys. And she says, will you write to me in jail? And he says, well, they told me you only like women. And she said, I never met a man before. I come from the South. You know what a virgin is? Oh, yeah. You know, it's a girl who can run faster than her brother. And <laughs> I couldn't run as fast as my uncle. I was 12. So once again, Fleming's basically giving us a female character we're supposed to care about who's damaged goods. Because it's the third fucking female character from this series that's been raped as a, as a younger woman. And that bond is now like I'm tired of this. Like, I'm, it's getting really kind of boring, like with a sexual abuse backstory, as if yeah. to say that a, a lesbian is only a failed woman. Do you know what I mean? Like a woman yeah. who, who's like absolutely. somehow damaged. Uh, absolutely. I gave uh, I gave two and a half out of five, my lowest girl mark I think in the whole series so far. I gave three. I said man. One thing I wanted to mention though, in returns of the uh, the girls, first we're talking about pussy galore. Pussy Galore was actually, there's two inspirations for Pussy Galore as a character, apparently. Um, the main one is of Blanche of, of Blanche Blackwell, who was a neighbor of Fleming in Jamaica, and Noel Coward as well. And Blanche Blackwell, of course, is the mother of Chris Blackwell, who is the founder of Island Records, Bob Marley's label. All right, cool. And this is the woman that he had an affair with, right? When he, Even though he was married to the, to, to, to the Viscount Anne Rothmere. Uh, he still had an affair with her, and Anne let Fleming have all of all of his uh, uh, affairs. She was aware of that because she was inf- she was having her own infidelities at the same time as well. They in fact married with the agreements on that, but she didn't like Blanche because Blanche was very close to Fleming more so than she wanted to. In fact, she even tore up his herb garb her, her, her herb garden, and at one point uh, Anne called her a lesbian in some capacity at some social scenario. So Pussy Galore is apparently an inspiration of Anne, of uh, Blanche Blackwell. Huh, interesting. The other inspiration for Pussy was uh, a woman named, um, well, she was called Pussy Deacon. That was that was like her nickname, Pussy Deacon. Yeah, that's she the was one actually I an, She was actually an operative of the SOE, which is basically kind of like a, a mixture of, of the British Secret Service uh, and the American allies in World War II doing spy operations. Mm-hmm. Kind of like an agent, kind of like... I guess a shield kind of scenario, I suppose, you know, like uh, OSS or uh, like basically an undercover operations in enemy territory. But very, very disappointing, though. I mean, for either of those inspirations. Inspirations, yeah, that's what's going into. It's like, it's almost like, is this what you really felt about those people? Like, yeah. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, in terms of narrative, um, I'll just fly. I mean, I've said a lot of this already, but. I really love the motivating incident. Uh, I love the Miami layover. I like kind of the way Fleming sets the story up. Uh, I like that this DuPont guy introduces uh, Bond to Goldfinger. And it's, you know, although it's a very quick look into a different card game, we're getting a different card game and a different sort of recreational look into what kind of Fleming knew about and what he liked to play at these clubs. 
Um, we've got Canasta this time, and the element of chance that's involved in that game is so high that you know if there's one guy who's winning regularly, then it's very unlikely. And so it all makes Bond interested, right? Because he knows cards and he knows how it works. You've already mentioned the three-part structure. I think that works well, although I would say this. Each of these sections could kind of be its own story, really, if you think about it. Yeah, they are. They're, they're very little in little episodes that could connect together in many yeah. ways. The link, but you know, with with the uniting factor of Goldfinger. Yeah. Like the whole section in, in yeah, the whole section with like it could be Bond on a holiday, getting back from a mission, and just foiling this asshole tycoon, you know, from totally. from stealing yeah. money from someone that 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 he knew. Yeah. The other story could be like Bond playing this playing this asshole tycoon at golf. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're, they're very, it's very episodic in how it was presented, just little kind of like little set pieces, I guess you could call them. Yeah, set pieces, exactly. Yeah, you took Vignettes. Out and, and I think that the, the links are tenuous, but you know what? It's okay because I'm going along with it and I like Goldfinger and I want to see more of him and I like Bond and he's consistent. So the consistencies in the character allow me to ignore some of these tenuous kind of jump along with the stories, you know? And, yeah. and that's okay because I like where the story goes. Um, I love the golf manipulation and double cheat there. I mean, I like golf, and I know you know the game as well, so that helps a bit. But I, th yeah. I thought it was cool, all the stuff at the golf club. I really like blacking the uh, the golf the, you know the man who knew yeah, the pro. like Bond as a yeah the pro who knew Bond as a young man mm -hmm. and and whatnot and there you have like Hawker saying how like he put a a ball a, a ball through a window at the clubhouse and then this sort of stuff mm -hmm. and and blacking I love how he described blacking as how like so he tells Goldfinger's coming in I want you to tell this lie to Goldfinger that I'm in the back room I'm doing this and blacking goes halfway on it. But then as soon as he asked him where Bond is, he says, oh, he's in the workroom, you know? Yeah, so yeah. it was just kind of a great little character moment that made that character stand out as a person, you know, just not just like a another way station for Bond, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, all the people associated with Bond in terms of their, uh, or all the male figures, sorry, are good. And I think they add something decorative to the background of, of his experience in this story. Fort Knox, the whole Operation Grand Slam, I felt really anticlimactic. Like there's so yes, much, it's an overdeveloped plan, but a really underdeveloped payoff, and that did yes. kind of drag things a little bit for me. And I, I don't want to talk about it today, and we haven't much time. But I think at the end of our series, we've got to talk about some of these generic Bond things that are starting to develop. One of them being that you know, for the third time now, we've got a British agent who is sorting out an American problem, even though it's yeah. Yeah, this, uh, that, that's right. Helping the yeah. Americans out. Doing what they can't do, not just helping them, doing what they can't do. And, you know, there, obviously there's a lot in there of inferiority complex and stuff that we can talk talk about later on. But, uh, yeah, Goldfinger admits twice that bluffing and looking just kind of serious worked, both in stealing the plane and inoculating all those passengers to sleep. I thought that was kind of lazy. Like, you didn't, yes. you didn't need to do that. The whole thing with him being, like, a Paramount Pictures executive, like... I did, that was I was kind of BS to me. Like I was, yeah. I did not find that that credible at all. But in spite of it all, um, those were minor limitations. I really enjoyed this story, and I think that for people picking up a Bond book, this is very readable. It's very fun, and it's textured with a lot of nice detail and very good writing. I don't want to underestimate or undervaluate that. Like the writing in this book is very good and I know we've skipped over a lot of it because we talked about other things and I wanted to do more with it but this is a well-written book I like I liked in comparison this to the Goldfinger film actually uh, in parts that they adapted really well from the novel 
And just as an aside, uh, I actually think Goldfinger, the film, is actually better than the novel. Um, the novel's better written, but the story presented as a whole on the film was a lot more entertaining. It's actually me. I've actually grown appreciation for Goldfinger as a Bond film more and more. I was thinking similar things as I was working through this book that, you know, the film's actually really good. And as a Roger Moore fan growing up, um, as a teenager particularly, you know, when you get yourself so polarized into things, I, I, I may have not given this film uh, the credit it deserved. But, well, Josh, I'm at 20.5 for um, this wonderful book, Goldfinger, out of 25. You are at 21. So definitely a return to form and familiarity for me in terms of, uh, of, of Fleming novels, and I think 21 is a good score for that in that regard. Well, I mean, our goal isn't to marry up. Our goal is to tell the story as we see it. It's just interesting that we are seeing it the same way. Quantum of Solace, <laughs> nothing to connect that title, in no way any connection to the uh, film version whatsoever. Well, um, I might dis I might disagree with you there because I think okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll, we'll there get we'll, we'll, there could be okay. Well, I'm I'm curious to hear your theory. Um, but let's move onwards. Yes. Um, through the narration of the governor <laughs> of Jamaica, Bond, and by extension, we the reader are told the tragic tale of the Masters. Philip Masters, the civil servant of noble blood who married an air hostess, Rhoda Llewellyn and the story of their marriage. It's the solution and the bitterness and revenge that followed it. And it is bitter. It is. Simply, Masters brings his new wife to his new posting in Hamilton, Bermuda. She quickly gets bored and unhappy, so the besotted Masters does everything he can to make her happy. After various attempts of bringing harmony to their marriage and her growing indifference to it, he signs the both of them to the golf club. This exposes this uh, to local golf club, sorry. Uh, this exposes Rhoda to the high society she's looking for, and on the surface, uh, that, that you know, the marriage seems to be going fine. But the son of the richest Hamilton merchant family, a well-known playboy, takes over her, and they have a toward and public affair. Uh, Masters is unable to cope with his broken heart and this humiliation. He leaves for England, leaving Rhoda and her entertainments back in Hamilton. Now, by leaving England, I mean that he gets he takes up another posting just to get the hell out of there, mm -hmm. you know, because he can't emotionally deal with the situation. Uh, um, so Rhoda's affair with the young Skyon comes to an end, uh, however, um, either through his choice or through parental influences. Um, and then he goes for the pretty American girls instead. Um, she prepares to make peace with her husband and get back to the old life. But when Philip returns, he shuts her out completely, divorces her. He relegates her to one side of the house. He has her paid through lawyers. Um, when he leaves Bermuda for good, she is passed around but ends up in a very bad way. And, and many see Master's punishment and treatment of her as disproportionate to the crime. But the governor tells Bond she ended up with a handsome prince, a Canadian millionaire, and was sitting next to Bond the whole time, a woman that he found completely boring. And it's important to note in the story that uh, at the beginning, Bond is so bored of being stuck at, 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 this, at this government house in Kingston, you know, just basically with these dull, rich people. And and he's trying to make some sort of conversation with the governor, but he can't. And the governor can't make conversation with Bond either because he doesn't identify with him either. So Bond's comment about saying, you know, just 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 to break, you know, break the ice, saying, you know, if I was ever to get married, it would be to an air hostess. And this, of course, opens up this whole conversation. And by the end of it, Bond is just is realizing that, you know, maybe I'll go into I'm, we're outside of the summary now, but it just goes to show that. 
all lives are not are, are exciting in their own ways and are just as tragic, you know, and and different as the kind of life that he leads. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you've done a good job there with the story. It, it it's very much an experiment. I mean, you you you'll know this because I'm sure you did your reading up on it anyway, but. Fleming really liked the writing of uh, Somerset Maw, and he wanted to do mm-hmm. a story in that fashion. And uh, this story was published in Cosmo or what, Modern Woman, one of those. Well, Modern Woman magazine, yeah. yeah. I was kind of surprised. Was, this is like, is this Fleming's uh, attempt at uh, trying to reach another audience? Or? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's so, it's, it's a pretty failed attempt. It's not a bad written story, but it's so very obviously, uh, it didn't need to be a James Bond story. And no. It, but. You know, to do this experiment, nobody would pay attention to it unless Bond was in it. I figure is probably why he decided to do that. I, I think so. He just had Bond as sort of just a character, but I think in a way, this is some kind of the stories that Bond would hear, and these were the kind of things. Uh, but it's kind of funny because at the end of the story, you know, where he says, uh, "Let's go to go to the last thing here." Um, uh, where is it here? You know, he said like so. After he hears this, sto- this story, the governor says. So they shook hands. The governor smiled. I'm glad the story interested you. I was afraid you might be bored. You made a very exciting life, to tell you the truth. I was at my wit's end to know what we would talk about after dinner. Life in the colonial service is very humdrum. They said goodnight. Bond walked off down the quiet street towards the harbor and the British Colonial Hotel. He reflected on the conference he would be having in the morning with the Coast Guards and the FBI in Miami. The prospect, which had previously interested, even excited him, was now edged with boredom and futility. But at the same time... How long would that boredom and fertility last and how much would his compassion and feeling that he had during this conversation for this couple, uh, how long would that last when he's back into the job again, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's almost like a brief moment where Bond just mm-hmm. reflects, you know, and I think Fleming using that story and putting his character Bond in it was kind of an interesting experiment. I think most, I think as a whole, I think it paid off. I was kind of compelled by the whole storyline in general and I kind of wanted to see its resolution. I thought it was going to end up with her killing him or vice versa, you know? So I was curious to see what the resolution was to the story. The story that he's told is very interesting. I mean, it, it feels like a, a Henry James type episode, you know, like an after dinner story and, and Bond yeah. is just the guy. I mean, there's two stories in this collection where Bond is just sitting basically as an observer, you know? Um, the other one is the Hildebrand rarity, which, well, in, in part anyway. And, you know, he's not the action man. He's the one who's kind of sitting back and, and, and listening to others take the lead or watch others take the lead. And in this story, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. I didn't at all not enjoy reading the story. I just didn't think that – well, actually, that's not true. I'm lying. I, I kind of did find it boring in places. I didn't understand why this was a Bond story. I have no problem with Fleming wanting to experiment, but – I don't think James Bond is going to walk away from this experience a changed man. It is a morality. It, it is a morality tale. It's clearly um, Bond being given an opportunity to reflect on his profession versus yeah. the, the everyday I, dangers of every other person. But exactly, I, I don't. I don't see. I don't. I don't. I don't see what's wrong with that kind of experimentation outside of outside of Fleming's regular formula. In my opinion, in his works, he, I think he would have been much richer and appreciated more by people like Anthony Boucher if you went mm. into this into these things. If I recall, Boucher actually liked this story in, in his review. Well, there's nothing wrong with Fleming wanting to do a story like this, but it's not a James Bond story if we're looking no. to, if we're looking to to uh, you know, to approximate its success according to our formula, then it's almost 
impossible. And I mean, I've made that note here that the low score of the story for me reflects the fact that this isn't a typical Bond story. And so yes. the, mar the marking index is kind of inherently flawed if you're trying to apply it to this. Yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of went into that a little bit too. Um, in a sense, of when I was when I was reviewing it, you know, with the angle, you know, how how do we review this, you know, in terms of it? So I try to get some a system that would work in my mind to see if I could apply that system to it. So I gave it a try. So did you want to hear it uh, to see how I sort of put this together? Okay. <laughs> so basically, it's over the angle. Okay, uh, the governor. So, so we can look at the adver adversaries and allies in this regard. In this regard, I should say. Okay. Um, so for the allies or adversaries, the governor is both. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, I did. I did look at it that way too. Yeah, the, for telling Bond the story and forcing him to come to self-reflection, perhaps. Um, maybe an ally, Lady Burford, for Rhoda. Uh, adversaries, Rhoda and Philip, for being both asses. Mm. Uh, the Hamilton Mercantile Scion, is he an adversary? Like, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, he's more of a plot device than anything. But he is. He's a plot device. Yeah, but I don't know. I gave adversaries and allies a three. That, that's what I, that's what I gave it as well. <laughs> we got the narrative right. So a tragic fable for Bond that shines light on his own character. He's able to see that the, the, even the normies lead interesting lives and have to make difficult decisions, though different than the ones he has to make in the field. Not to mention that regular people with all their pettiness and grudges and other idiosyncrasies, they can be just as cruel. And as many and as menacing as as any adversary he's discovered in that way, and that I thought that was a strong part of it. I gave that a four. Wow. Okay. I gave it a three. Um, I thought it was a little too gimmicky for my liking, um, and a little too conveniently, you know, positioned. I, I don't know. I didn't see the story as revelatory in that way. This it's not the first time that Bond would have had a taste of real human life and a more a moral you know, uh, ethical type of scenario. But where has Fleming had this, this similar situation in a book before with like a, a scene, seeing like the lives of, of regular, of regular people identifying with them. Can you name me an instance, like in the other books where he does that? <laughs> not, not under pressure like this. No, but, um, fair enough. So you're also looking at the novelty of it and okay. I appreciate that. Okay. But I don't appreciate um, it enough to change it from a three. To be honest, I'm actually I shocked that you dislike this story, actually. I thought you would really like this story, but I guess I was wrong there. I, I didn't mind the storytelling, but style is important to me as well. And I didn't think that there were enough opportunities within the governor's uh, you know, narration, if you'll take that. Bond, you know, he, he could have jumped back and looked at Bond's reaction. Bond could have asked a question. I mean, I know that Bond was bored, but as he... Fleming does break a couple of times back to uh, you know to the, the the two men in the room and lighting a new cigar or leaning back in a chair and I thought more could have been done to bring Bond into that story in those moments. You see, I kind of like the establishment of Bond being outside an outsider in this way too because there's that whole section where he's trying to make talk with the governor even when, he, when the governor's telling the story at the beginning and Bond you know alludes to like sex and stuff like that for the problems like saying like oh black women are beautiful but you don't want to use birth you make sure you're using birth control or something like that right and uh -huh. and the governor just said like this guy's a bit of an asshole you know so <laughs> so i don't know i kind of like i kind of like that that how the, the natural flow of the conversation and whatnot and kind of the respect that both men had by the end of the conversation like i found bond made like a connection back to regular society here than he normally wouldn't have and even though he found you know Rhoda very boring as the Canadian millionaire's wife. 
he saw that, you know, there is something behind everyone. And I don't know, like, I just found that this was, I, I just found it was a bit revelatory in that way. Not and revelatory, obviously... wrong word. Um, Refreshing. Illuminating. illuminating. Illuminating, okay. All right, yeah. well, what, what did you give Rhoda? Oh, Rhoda, as a girl? Yeah. Um, I gave her a four. Holy I... shit, you gave her a four? Yeah, I found her quite a character. She's one of Fleming's fallen women, usually. She differed from Tiffany Case and Pussy Galore in that they weren't raped and became strong women. Um, she was youthful in spirit and selfish, and she paid dearly for, for, for that, wow. but still ends up on top anyway. She was a good player of the game okay. in that regard. So then again, you have Fleming taking her down again by reducing her to basically being a... Because uh, remember that he mentioned about her, how like she fell on bad times after Philip left, and she basically almost became a whore. Well, yes. The, the irony is, is that that's basically what she still is, essentially. Well, like, yeah, in, in she's her... just she's just moved. Like she hasn't, like, yeah. <clears throat> she hasn't learned. I mean, she, she she's now married to Harvey Miller, this Canadian natural, still, natural it, gas millionaire. But in her respect, what's her? Yeah, she's like with the Irving family now or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like what? In terms of it's like in terms of she's kind of quite successful. I mean. We can we can argue whether or not that's morally right, or you know, if it's if, if her if her situation is ethical where she is right now, that's a different story. But she didn't end up on top again. And Philip, I mean, with all his pettiness and his righteousness, uh, you know, he, he basically died in Africa. You know, he so, was a, he was a dick, and she was a she was a user. I mean, I, I don't yeah. I don't I, I can't see behind those um, those caricatures. I mean, to me, it's it's really transparent i mean there's nothing really in her character i i to call her one of fleming's best fallen women no way yeah. i i i love that you're that you're you're going in this direction man but i can't i can't follow this is you. the problem with these short stories is that, I mean, that when you're analyzing them when you're analyzing them you're trying to see them as feature-length novels so you try to put a bit more you try to look for more nuances in the characters maybe than you should and maybe that was my failure here. I don't or not think... my failure, yeah, but my uh, overstep overstepping my own um, the limitation that the narrative was offering me. I think you are giving. Okay, listen. I think you're giving Quantum of Solace a lot of credit, and you're giving it attention that it deserves, critically and analytically. Just just because I don't agree with you. And I don't like I, I don't have a problem with Fleming experimenting, but if he's yeah. gonna experiment with James Bond, give me more than three paragraphs at the end of the story where he where he responds to it. Like mm. I d I don't see the big Bond reflection because there's only so little of him at the end. He just kinda has a cheeky smile as he walks home in the dark after having a few drinks. Like yeah. that's not enough of a character change or a reflection for me to say, wow, this was a, a moment for Bond to really take stock of himself like fair enough i'm not i'm not coming at you man at all for giving yeah. the story praise i think that you're really going at it with a nice surgical tooth i'm just saying for me there ain't enough of it in there uh, and i'm not going to follow you there but yeah i think it's great that we're having a different opinion of this story um yeah. I, I gave her a 2.5 um look in the spirit of brevity let's move on locations eh. two i went two for locations a failing i was arc. i was three but Okay. I thought Hamilton Society was captured well in the story and it whatnot. Was. And, yes, it was. And, and the strata of like of, of, of that, but locale-wise, there wasn't really much there at all. Nothing too exotic or exciting. Now, equipment, one. <laughs> I put two. The crappy car with overdue payments that Philip uses to <laughs> yeah, get one more day going wrote his guts. I knew you would do the car. I knew you would. <laughs> and the radiator, too. Why not, eh? Shit. Okay, it's a right. radiator. 
So you went for 16 in total, and I went for, uh, what's that? 4 plus 1 is 5, and 8 is 13.5 is what I've got. I got two for uh, equipment, by the way, yeah. Yeah, I got you there. You're 16 in total, and I'm 13.5 in total. Right, well, neither one of us really loved this story, but you found it more novel and interesting. Now, listen, one thing we're going to talk about really quickly before we move on is this idea of the, 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 the title, the quantum of solace, which the governor explains is the term that he's come up with to describe the minimal amount of comfort or respect necessary in a relationship in order to maintain its survival, right? So yeah. when the quantum of solace between two people has been lost, then the relationship is is doomed because you don't care if the other person's alive basically now the reason i think there's a connection to the film is because i think we are meant to consider and maybe i'm giving i think daniel craig said it's just a good title but um i think maybe it's too much credit but if you think about bond uh and vesper's character relationship at this point maybe that's Meant that that's where he says fuck her you know the bitch is dead that type of thing maybe that's truly yeah. what he's trying to say and that's why the title's there could be could be yeah that's that's my best hit but anyway uh let, let's move away from quantum of solace that experiment which kind of worked uh, in some ways but not really in others Today, Bond in bling-studded undercover, Diamonds Are Forever, the fourth Ian Fleming novel in the series. We've got all kinds of shit going on here. We've got a one-handed Felix, we've got a hunchback of Hatton Garden, uh, homosexual assassins, mud bath murders, it's, it's all kinds of fun. Absolutely, a.k.a. what Fleming thinks of America. Let's move straight into this. Um, Jonathan Cape published this novel in 1956, March 26th to be precise. Uh, I got some notes here written on that publication. Uh, the first run of 12,500 sold pretty quickly, as the other three runs did as well for the previous three books. Uh, interestingly, the, the, the novel was serialized by the Daily Express newspaper from the 12th of April, and that, that went for quite a while. I thought that was quite interesting, you know. It's the first novel that Fleming had sold to the newspaper to serialize, almost like Charles Dickens used to do. Or, or even uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as well, mm -hmm. which, which, which would be a more apt comparison if you think about it. It would be. It was an interesting gambit, though, on the part of Fleming because it seemed to lead to an overall rise in novel sales. And by this time, you got four novels, three of those on the back burner, you know, that are maybe, sorry, the back shelf of libraries or bookshops. Or airports that are starting to come back in. So yeah, I think it was a, an interesting marketing ploy. Um, in the United States, later in the year, October, Macmillan publishes this on paperback. And I don't know, I certainly didn't know this. Um, oh, sorry. And two years later, Pan Paperback, as they did with the other ones, issued uh, a version of this novel and sold 68,000 copies before the year was out. So this is a good selling book. And since its original run, it's never been out of print. So I think that's pretty cool. Moonraker was another one that was never out of print. Hmm. The other two did kind of dip and weave a little bit, but they came back pretty solid, um, Live and Let Die and Casino Royale. But I learned something as I was doing my research on this. I thought it was really interesting, and I'd like your take on it to just kind of get your opinion if I can. Okay. The British Prime Minister, right, at the time, Sir Anthony Eden, visited Ian Fleming in Jamaica during the time that this book came out to recuperate from the Suez Crisis which later, of course, saw him stepping down from power. And 
I guess some critics would say that the the Suez crisis uh, marked the end of Britain as a superpower. I don't know if yeah, because they kind of had to bow over to the demands of elsewhere, right? They had yeah. to they had to become they had to become a supplicant, basically. Yeah, that's right. Well, anyway, the the British Prime Minister's visit to Fleming, whatever their friendship or relationship, and and I don't know much about that. You may know more as his biographer, or at least for the purposes of our series, you're his biographer. Um, that visit was really reported on in the press, and that actually helped Fleming sell more books. More people were interested in, you know, if they didn't know before, the, the friendship of or the identity of um, Ian Fleming. Mm. And it kind of was kind of interesting that uh, the British PM went to visit him in Jamaica. Do you know, that's definitely a good PR boost, that's for sure. I mean, a person who is kind of his political career has come to an end, but, you know, he was known for being the prime minister during the Suez crisis and all of that. And, you know, the media is going to be following him and let him around, you know, like, like how they love all scandals. And this is just another example of uh, the media working favor in your favor, I suppose. Uh, anyway, I just... ask the Kardashians. <laughs> well, I didn't know if, uh, if you knew much about him or not. Um, I certainly don't know uh, as much about 20th century British politics or probably even the Suez crisis as you do. I know the Suez crisis as a Canadian, of course, because of Lester B. Pearson's involvement and really the, mm -hmm. the um, UN peacekeeping was kind of born out of this, this conflict. Um, but I didn't know much about Anthony Eden or his relationship with Ian Fleming, but it doesn't surprise me that he was friends with these blue bloods, you know? Oh, absolutely. Well, he was kind of a blue blood himself. I mean, his father, his father, I mean, he came from Scottish merchant. No, well, no, he wasn't a blue blood because he comes from Scots merchant no, yeah. nobility. So it's kind of like a, uh, teal. a bot nobility. Kind of teal. Yeah. Teal. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a teal, teal blood. Turquoise. Turquoise. Right, anyway, so the book was received pretty well, um, and not surprisingly, as we've seen with Fleming uh, earlier, the novels kind of had mixed reviews. This one also had mixed reviews. I'll just share a little bit from different individuals here. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, Julian Simons writing for the Times Literary Supplement, um, which is interesting because I find the TLS nowadays is quite a snooty publication. I occasionally look at it to see what's up and coming, but I can't imagine them. I cannot imagine the Times Literary Supplement today uh, reviewing a pulp fiction, uh, you know, piece like this. I'm not familiar with that particular publication, but I mean, I guess it'd be the equivalent of like the New Yorker giving it a good review. Is that what you're trying to get? Yes, at? yes, that yeah. is. Yeah, it is. It's similar to that. It's it's considered like I don't know. I don't like using the word elitist because it's got so many gray. I, I can kind of see sort of people at, at that if they're similar like to the New Yorker types, you know, kind of like this snooty hipster. It was, a, it was refreshing from the other pulp before because I find that Fleming is really good at the travelogue. He's mm -hmm. really good at establishing action sequences and whatnot. And he probably does it in a far much better way and in kind of a more fresher way than all the other kind of pulp novels out there. And I think he skews the line between airport fiction, which can, which is kind of like, I think, above the pulp novel. Yes. And, and, and uh, you know, the pulp novel themselves, right? There's a bit of film noir, a bit of pulp in his novels. But at the same time, there's also a bit of literary flourish in there. And at moments that just kind of, just kind of come out of nowhere. And you find some really very insight into people every now and then that really surprises you, you know? Yeah, I agree. And this guy... So maybe just because it was just like so against the norm of what they were used to 
that's why they they kind of said, well, if you like this those types of novels, you should really try out Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. He kind of re-examines that whole genre. So someone there kind of took the French New Wave approach to uh, to his work. You know, like oh, all these all these American films made in the '40s. They look like, um, you know, they're kind of like shown during the war and they were low budget and no one cared about them at the time because they're just trash. Well, actually, there were there, there was a lot of stuff that you don't realize how good they were. Mm-hmm. So th- that's just my um, opinion on that. I'm maybe not giving them a fair shake to TLS because I, I don't read it as regularly as maybe I could, certainly as an English teacher. But I I don't know, like maybe. And, and of course, Jesus, you know, 50, 60 years ago, context is much different. Publication, the world of, uh, of literature mm. is much different. And, yes. You know, and Fleming maybe had a few friends in in public in the publishing world, and maybe it wouldn't be difficult for his books to get targeted by any number of review publications. Yeah. Anyway, Julian Simons, who's writing for the TLS at the time, says this: Fleming has a fine eye for places, something that you and I have said before, an ability to convey his own interest in the mechanics of gambling and an air of knowledgeableness. But, and this part I found interesting. An inability to write convincing dialogue, and my first my, my first reaction to to reading that was uh, disagreement because I think that Diamonds Are Forever has got some really good dialogue and not, oh absolutely not just yeah. entertaining but quite revealing and quite quite insightful. But we'll get into that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, that's one thing I want to talk about with some of this with some of the uh, the dialogue in here, and uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll definitely get into that. Great. Um, the Observer, Maurice Richardson says um, that. In crime fiction today, Bond, he rates as one of the most cunningly synthesized heroes. He says that Fleming, to his credit, does not start indulging his wilder fantasies until he has laid down a foundation of factual description. So this info drop that we've cited before that happens at the beginning of these books and indeed the beginning of several of the movies uh, is is something that, at least with this writer, um, feels good. It's something that is necessary before the story takes off in its wilder tangents. it's, it, he wants to believe that the character that we're about to see, who may be a bit kind of over the top in his own way, exists within a fundamental working universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, I guess Fleming does do that, doesn't he? he? He does. He does do that. He sets everything up. He shows you what's going on. We get the mission, you know, before you choose to accept it aspect of it. Yeah. And then yeah. you go into the mission, but then we see the man himself revealed by the mission. Uh-huh. Now, here's an interesting quote from Raymond Chandler. Who, mm. who said um, that this, Diamonds Are Forever, is about the nicest piece of bookmaking in this type of literature, which I've seen for a long time. Neat, clean, spare, and never pretentious. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that I agree with the last bit, but I certainly like the fact that he's getting uh, a tip of the hat from a guy like Chandler. Oh, absolutely. I mean... You know, the guy that uh, created Philip Marlowe and some of the best, you know, American crime fiction. I mean, you can't top that. The New York Times writer, Anthony Boucher, who we've cited on each of the previous episodes we've looked at, said that Fleming's handling of America and Americans is well above the British average. Now, if that's the case, then the the British average must have been pretty damn poor at the time. Yeah. I, I can imagine. I mean, they, when they probably read Diamonds Are Forever, you know, they, they, it's like how they I, – I, when I read that book, I pictured, is this how the British see America as a bunch of cowboys with, like, old toy trains and, yeah. and, <laughs> and you know, and, like, and they're all a bunch of gangsters and stuff like that? Well, that's certainly how he saw the, the mob, and we will talk about that. But yeah. this, guy, this guy also says that Bond seems to resolve his assignments more by muscles and luck 
than by any sign of operative intelligence. And that's true. That's definitely true, especially yeah. in this novel. But yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment. Last thing I wanted to share is just a little piece of curiosity, really, that uh, I didn't know. Um, Diamonds Are Forever was adapted as a daily comic strip in the Daily Express, and it was syndicated around the world. So uh, it was Moonraker, if I recall. Uh, Live and Let Die was. I don't know about Moonraker. Could have been. But from the 10th of August, 1959, to the 30th of January, this in 20, uh, 1960, this novel's action had been adapted by a guy named Henry Gamage and it was illustrated by John McCluskey and they started in 58 with Casino Royale it's, it's just pretty interesting stuff but what I found even more interesting that was that Ian Fleming and Lord Beaverbrook Max Aiken who of course you know were, who he, he owned the Express this Canadian um, media mogul who ended up yep. serving in Churchill's parliament and whatnot. He owned the Daily Express, and these guys ended up having arguments over the ownership of some of these stories. And I found this really interesting reading into it, because if you think about the James Bond stories and films, you hear about Thunderball, and, you know, there's that the whole McClory incident, and what, what percentage of the story was his, and what percentage was Fleming's. But now we've got another guy, a much more powerful figure in Lord Beaverbrook. Mm -hmm who also claimed to have some rights to parts of publications within the James Bond world. And it's really not a story that's heard of more. And I'm interested in looking, maybe in my own time, just into that. Because Beaverbrook, yeah. of course, was a big um, figure in Canadian and British life. But particularly in the province of New Brunswick, where the university... Um, received quite a bit of an endowment from him, and a lot of the campus is named after him. You know, different buildings and stuff like that in Fredericton? Yes, that's so, true. It's interesting to think that, you know... And, and, and his statue is all over the place. It is, indeed, yeah. The Lord Beaverbrook Gallery in Fredericton, New Brunswick, has got paintings by Dali, which were commissions. And, I mean, Dali is one of, if not the, you know leading surrealist figure of the 20th century and one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. And the fact that, you know, Ian Fleming mixed circles with so many interesting and important figures of the time, like Beaverbrook and like Sir Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, and um, he's got friends that open doors for him in all kinds of different places. Like, he, he ended up, after Diamonds Are Forever, writing a book about the diamond smuggling trade helpfully informed by one of the uh, higher-ups, a buddy of his, uh, for De Beers. And, mm -hmm. it, and they mentioned De Beers, yeah, that, you know, it was kind of like the rivalry to the House of Diamonds, right? That's right. And you've mentioned before this idea of him being a very, uh, politi not politicized, but a very important figure insofar as his uh, circle of friends and influences. And yes. here we go. Here we are again with even more evidence of that. Yeah, it's true. I think as we go, as we kind of turn the final page of each uh, book and then we kind of dissect it, we learn a lot more about Fleming the Man and also yes, yeah, and and a kind of a uh, I guess a cornucopia almost of all this elbow rubbing with uh, with with high society of the time and yep. and just so how connected and powerful he was and this these got this guy. I mean, I guess he was in a position where. He could write these books in complete luxury. He could do what he wanted. He could have extramarital affairs, and he had all of society backing him. But I do like the I do like the fact that even even with all this clout and all these people behind him and everything, he still he he was still very sensitive to to the criticism of his writing at many at many points in his life.
he's drawn to them automatically. He's drawn to damaged women, i.e. Vesper, uh, Tiffany Case. And I think a foreshadowing to a certain, uh, I guess, famous, the most famous Bond, Bond girl that, that, that he's had down the road. Right. Well, we'll we'll leave uh, Teresa out of this for the while. Though. Yes. Yes. Uh, but anyway, you know what I mean. I do indeed. Uh, yeah. So the description that Fleming gives of Tiffany Case, she was sitting half naked astride a chair in front of the dressing table, gazing across the back of the chair into the triple mirror. Her bare arms were folded along the tall back of the chair, and her chin was resting on her arms. Her spine was arched and there was arrogance in the set of her head and shoulders. The black string of her brassiere across the naked back. The tight black lace pants and the splay of her legs whipped at Bond's senses. She is provocative, deliberately so, and she is a massive flirt, but she's so sure of herself and she is very sure that she's not going to fall for any man that she can almost walk around in their presence half naked. And yes. given what happened to her, that is an exceptionally courageous ploy. It's a courageous ploy, yes, but it's also a very common thing. A lot of girls who end up becoming ending up, ending up in crime, like madams for of cat houses, for example, they themselves were in a similar situation to Tiffany Case. So, you know, it's kind of like you know, like how like if if you were abused as a child, you end up like kind of being that way as an adult to other people. You know, like it's it's just it's just it's just kind of that way where a very traumatic experience can make you very strong and willful and make you do those things and not care, you know? Uh-huh. And, and so Bond, Bond is really enamored by her. He's really intrigued by her, as you say. And he tries to guess at what the, the T in her initial could mean. And he plays, the, he plays the mind game with himself before he asks her. And I like that, that Bond is really, he, he's, he's, he's really finding her a mystery, a bit of an enigma to unravel. And well, she's, he's, she, she's making this uh, more interesting for him now, you know? Yeah, like totally, yeah. <laughs> And she's such a contrast to previous Bond girls that we've seen, and I really like that. I like that yes. we, have a, we have a girl here. I'm not going to say that she can stand at Bond's level because she can't. Fleming doesn't want her to. But he no, gives, and you he see gives that in the writing strength. too. Yeah, he writes this woman with, with a certain spirit of strength that he hasn't given to any of the previous Bond girls. And her qualities are kind of described in terms of diamonds as well not and, and you know you could argue that maybe it's a little clunky the way he drops this in but this word chatoyance uh chatoyance yeah i use it a couple times he does i, yeah. I, I had to look i had to look that up in the oxford dictionary uh, so did i the eyes themselves <laughs> had the rare quality of chatoyance when jewels have chatoyance the color and the luster changes with movement in the light and the color of this girl's eyes seemed to vary between a light gray and a deep gray blue her skin was lightly tanned and without makeup except for a deep red on her lips, which were full and soft and rather moody, so as to give the effect of what is called a sinful mouth. But not, thought Bond, one that often sinned, if one was to judge by the level eyes and the hint of authority and tension behind them. She's a tough cookie, is what she is, and she's defended for herself, and she does her job well in, in her situation, and that's all that, that's all that she's, she's known so far, and she hasn't really looked outside those horizons yet. And I think, she, yep. and, and we'll get into that down the road when we get into their conversation on the Elizabeth. Yes, definitely. And more than ever, I think in the series so far, Bond is put on the back foot with a woman and he acts, he almost has to start playing down the fact that he finds her really attractive because he doesn't want to look weak in front of her. And that's something yes. we have not seen before. That's, de that, that's definitely true. Yes, I agree. Uh, I think Fleming, I think he found American women fascinating. I don't know, like maybe as a, as a youngster or 
we saw like, those crime films in the 30s or early 40s, maybe even when, you know, when, when he was even at war and when they were showing these, these films of the soldiers and stuff. Maybe he, maybe he liked gangsters malls. Maybe they're, 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 they're these kind of tough broads like Bacall and mm. Mae West and all them. Maybe he just found them really fascinating because yeah, I think that's what he was trying to kind of show when he wrote Tiffany. Las Vegas, really good travelogue. Um, Bond's English prudishness kind of cuts through, I think, some truths about the place. Like, there might be more to Las Vegas than Bond or the English reader would give credit to, but I, I'm not sure that there's much. Um, there's some, yeah, he kind of dismisses it. It's just a bunch of gloss, basically, and yeah, neon, right? totally. I mean, there, there's some pretty fabulous description of the hotels, the lights, the nature, the landscape, the turquoise floor, all of that yeah. tiara. Like, I did like that. Specterville was a real letdown. Uh, for, for some place that you know, supposed to mark the climax of the novel, it was kind of anticlimactic, really. Uh, kind of just like like we've already said, Snidely Whiplash and Dudley Do-Right. It was kind of stupid. Yeah, but I have a feeling that Fleming was doing that deliberately to some for, for thematic reasons uh, that maybe, I, just yeah. don't, I just don't think worked. Yeah, you know? yeah, maybe he was trying to highlight just how how little all of this adds up to in terms of American mobster. I don't know. But uh, the Queen Elizabeth stuff was really good, as we've already said. The dining, the auction, all of the the cabin action, that stuff was really cool. Narrative. Narrative. Uh, yeah, so I found it was kind of like, there were parts of the narrative that, that, that were to me were just kind of meant to introduce certain characters and certain faucets of, of their relationship with Bond. Like... Bond going to Saratoga Springs, which is for him and Light for Lighter to have a trip together. In my personal opinion, because nothing really happens in Saratoga Spr Springs. We're introduced to Mr. Wynn and Mr. Kidd in that sequence, but that's about it, you know. At the end uh, of the sequence, too. Yeah, and yeah, and at the end, at the at the end. So I mean, technically, they could have just jumped right to Las Vegas sent, and, and sent him to Las Vegas. But I guess because Bond was in New York, it logically made more sense to send him nearby to a place to get the money, right? Yeah, totally. So that so that, so so plot logically that works out fine. So you know, like it was kind of like an A to B, an A B C, I guess to uh, yeah. uh, to use the proper term for the narrative. Um, there wasn't a lot of undercover espionage stuff that I that, in my my opinion, I would have liked that a bit more. I would like to see Bond trying to blend in in that regard. Maybe like a kind of humorous scene of him trying to be a gangster. I think that would have been kind of kind of kind of funny because because whenever he did try to get tougher like a gangster would be like those people like he automatically got rebuffed by Tiffany for it. And then he just went back to, you know, just being bond as, 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 essentially. Yeah. Um, I found the opening quarter had a promise. There was a great setup. And then the last quarter was just fantastic. So yeah. um, I give it a three, 3.5. Right. Well, I nailed it at 3.5. I'm right with you there. I thought, I love the concept. I really love the concept of this novel. I didn't think the diamonds paid off, though. I wanted to read more about diamonds. I mean, I, yeah. I wanted more of this, the actual diamond smuggling to come through in the story. That, And it was a little disappointing when it just led to these crooks in costume doing cosplay in this ghost town. Like, I didn't, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish that there was just more diamond plot in this story. Yeah. There were serious, serious highlights in here. Um, the mud baths, I loved. I love the airplane scenes, yeah. every, everything on the Queen Elizabeth, and I really also like the way that um, that the Las Vegas environment, maybe not so much the casinos, but the environment and the 
in the desert was described by Fleming. I thought that was really good rendering on his part. Um, well, well, that's the well, well, that's the well, that's the locale, right? That that is, well, okay, fair enough. It is, yes, it is. But I mean, in terms of how that kind of motivated the story in the settings, I like that aspect. But yes, you're right. It is the locales, uh, and I'm talking about the parts of the story I liked. But anyway, uh, I I like the structure. I like the way the story, although it's A to B to C, like you said, and there's not a lot of secrecy in it. It starts and stops in this paralytical way. I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah definitely. It definitely had that um, the paralytical. I agree with that. It was very, it was very taut. I guess almost like a very taut screenplay, like how it was done yeah, in that way. Yeah, it was it's cinematic in that sense. The Saratoga Springs stuff, nah, it didn't really pay off that much for me. I liked it, and I liked some of the descriptions of you know the early morning fields and the horses and all that. That was cool, but. You know, I'm, it didn't do much for me. But, uh, yeah, I thought there were better parts of the story. So in that respect, I didn't agree with what a lot of critics thought of the story as that being, like, real, you know, great travelogue episode. I was more interested in the Queen Elizabeth scenes, the mud bath scenes, um, the character type stuff, you know? Exactly. I agree. Okay. We've got a 20 and a 20.5 scoring. That's pretty cool. Um Still five short of the perfect novel in terms of the angle. And not even a perfect novel, but a perfect Bond novel, as whatever our index indicates. If if I had to say one thing about Diamonds of Forever that really struck it back, I would say that there's just not enough payoff with the diamonds. And that it was kind of like a MacGuffin I was following the whole way through. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a, a MacGuffin. It, was, it didn't really come off in, my, in anything like... I never found what Bond was doing was really instrumental to... There was no... I don't think there was any high stakes. I don't know why he was in there. Mm-hmm. He was just doing a job, right? And he got overwhelmed and he had an adventure with gangsters and and gangsters who thought they were like cowboys. You know, like, it was just... It, to me, it, it, the story of this didn't really kind of get into focus to me as emotional investment until the Queen Elizabeth sequence. And that's really saying something because that came at the end. I was invested in the story emotionally for the sake of Tiffany because I felt that she was more interesting than Bond in a lot of places. Yeah, Bond was kind of just walking through all this in many ways. He was. And I didn't find it a lesser novel because of that, obviously. It still scored really high on my chart. Well, that's that's interesting, man. I mean, we both really like this book. Nineteen fifty-three, the year of the publication of Casino Royale, the first James Bond book, and long before this music. That's the music. Long before any gun barrel sequence, long before any audience cheering the name of Sean Connery or any other Bond to follow, there was of course Casino Royale, which was the novel that started it off. I don't know if Fleming had any idea that he was onto a winner when he wrote. He may have suspected that he had created a formula that would work for, you know, future novels and future installments, but there's no way he could have imagined just how explosive the series would become in a few years' time, because when Casino Royale was first published in 1953, it had already been out there for a little while. As you say, uh, Jonathan Cape Limited was the company that, in the UK at least, took the, uh, took the book and the story on to its first run. How many copies, Josh, do you think? Hmm. I would say, given the fact that it, I know that it, it, that uh, they were reluctant to publish, they probably didn't publish a lot at the, at the beginning. I would say maybe 20,000. 
4,728. <laughs> and of course, yeah. demand, of course, took uh, the, the, the invisible hand kind of took, took went into play then after that, I'm sure. It did, yeah. Uh, sold out in less than a month. And the second print run, which was done during the same month, also sold out. And a third run of 8,000 copies also sold out. So the sales figures were pretty strong, strong enough at least for Cape to offer Fleming a three-book deal. we got to remember, this is in 1953. There's no shortage of Cold War stories and, and espionage coming through the uh, bookshops and the newsagents. But there was something a little unique, I think, that Cape may have found within Casino Royale, and it certainly didn't hurt to have that publication history already there, uh, etched between Fleming and the publishing house. April 1955, Pan issues a paperback run selling 41,000 copies in its first year, and it's really after that Pan paperback run that we see Ian Fleming's name, or we would have heard Ian Fleming's name, uttered a lot more across the British Isles. Yeah, you're seeing him in bookstores, airport bar, air, airport stores. Like it, it, it was kind of like the beginning of like the bestseller period, I suppose. You know, like uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it it was you know it it was kind of like the traveler's book to have on the plane. Um, you know, like it was what, what the Don Drapers of the world were uh, were were reading. You know, <laughs> I know I know you're keen to draw the parallels uh, to Don Draper, and I'm going to give you a chance, a stage to do that later. Um, oh. But meanwhile, overseas, uh, it didn't take off quite as quickly. In the United States, um, and I suppose to a lesser degree the Canadian market as well, it wasn't published until March of 1954. Three, oh. pu three publishers turned down the book before Macmillan offered Fleming a deal. Um, 4,000 copies were sold in its first year across the entire United States, and that's not a lot if you put it into perspective. When released, no, when released as a paperback, um, it was renamed as you asked for it in an effort to boost sales because they didn't think Casino Royale was really you know, selling as a title. And so there are still some copies out there available of you asked for it. And it's the exact same story, but you can bet that the eBay sellers, especially those that hold a copy in good condition, are asking a pretty penny for it from collectors. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in terms of reception, critically, publicly, many reviews uh, and we can talk about this when we get into the book, many reviews share a similar idea about how the prose of Fleming's first novel, first Bond novel, um, kind of flowed. They felt that the story was passable, you know, kind of serviceable, okay, uh, but that it was the telling of the story that was particularly interesting. And, <laughs> and that, that, that idea of style is, I think, something that we got to talk about here. It's going to be part of our rating when we get to it at the end of this discussion, but I want to read... Um, I, I want to read a, a few quotes, I guess they are, from some UK papers at the time. Um, some referred to this as, quote, schoolboy stuff, uh, a cretinous, featuring a cretinous love affair. They described the story, or sorry, yeah, the story is infantile, uh, relentless pitting of wits. Uh, but the warmth from the critics, as I already said, seemed directed at the way that the, the ambitious style, the way there are leaps in the story that seem to uh, propel the character and its narrative, strength and distinction, very high order, brilliance of telling, all of those are, you know, pretty favorable uh, yeah, snippets. Absolutely. It makes you overlook some other flaws that you might perceive in yeah. that way. 
And, and in the New York Times, the writer uh, Anthony Boucher at the time um, wrote this, and I've, I've just copied a bit of it down. Um, Casino Royale manages to make Baccarat clear, even to one who's never played it, and produce as exciting a gambling sequence as I've ever read, but said that the casino and... Um, but said that after the casino, the story gets quite boring and there's really no need to read it. And I, I kind of disagree with the last bit of the comment, but I very much agree with the first bit of the comment. I remember how proud I was when I read Casino Royale for the first time during my work. I was working over at the campground. You remember where I worked, don't you? Oh, yeah, Prince Edward Park. Prince Edward Park, yeah. I remember reading it on a night shift, and um, I remember learning, and I had a deck of cards with me because we had a deck of cards in the office. I just remember learning to teach myself how to play Baccarat and thinking, this is pretty cool. And for a few short months, I actually did. I used that chapter of Casino Royale to, to learn how to play that game. And so I kind of felt that that helped me watching the films a little bit, especially those early Connery films. Oh, absolutely. The thing is, too, is that I, I always, I never really learned how to play Baccarat. I never really learned about Baccarat until I read the novel. So when I was watching them play this alien or this some kind of weird version of like blackjack or something i have no idea what they were doing like why is there like a spatula on the table on, on the table why is there like this a shoe in the middle of the table with all these cards in it it's like where are they getting these cards are they just dispensing them from something like why so many cards you know and uh yeah. so it was very alien looking game to me and i just kind of just accepted it and it's like okay this is what french or european people play over there you know like in monte carlo like this isn't like an american gambling um uh uh, staple like poker, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, in the film version of Casino Royale, they make poker the game uh, that he plays with La Chifra instead right. of uh, Baccarat. I guess because poker would be easier for the American audiences to follow, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say just the American audiences. I would probably say the modern audiences that are, are film going in, in different countries around the world because, yeah, True. fine, Baccarat may, may be European in origin, but poker has kind of propelled itself as being, especially if you think of online gambling, you know, it's kind of the game that all the pool halls will break down and do at the end of their nights, and it kind of True. brings people together in a social way on the weekends for the working class, and I think poker would be your best cinema sale, you know? Yeah, absolutely, you know, poker's, I mean, I play played it once or twice, and because, uh, you know, I'm not a gambler, so I don't, but whenever I do play it, you know, it's, it's a fun game, and I, I, I agree, background's a little different, but... Um, if I think I've, I think now that I know the rules after reading the book, I think I would definitely um, if I go to a casino and they have Baccarat, I give Baccarat a go, see what happens. Just to see what happens. Yeah, you take the shoe. You take the shoe. Take the shoe. Um, I don't. I don't really want to talk too much about the gambling scene. I know a lot of critics have said that this is the heart of the book. And in fact, at the beginning, we said it's a really great scene. It is. My favorite bit isn't that Bond manages to um, to win. It's that he wouldn't have won without the help of Felix Leiter, who backed him the extra um, couple of million francs. That's right. Uh, that that's definitely true because in the because they because the book kind of sets. I like, I like what Fleming does is he's just you know like he sets up the cool cavalier secret agent type, uh, sophisticated with uh, with Bond, and then the very the very first round he plays with Le Chief. He loses. He loses the whole operation because of, of this, this, this built-up arrogance and this built-up, you know, um, this, and then you know, and then Felix Leiter comes in. You know, here's a uh, here's a, uh, a, 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 a um, you know, and a a lending from you know the boys at Langley. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it just goes to show that uh, sometimes you know your allies help too. And maybe this was Fleming just just kind of, just kind of you know 
talking about, you know, since he served in World War II, he knew that he was behind the scenes and, and, and getting these commando guys to go where they needed to go. But they, they, but he also knew there was it was a concerted effort on everyone's part. You know what I mean? Yeah. And as he puts down, um, and it's interesting too because he doesn't put down lighter at all in his occupation because because no. the letters are from Texas and and uh, all good men are from all good men are are from Texas and Americans are great people. And I know for a fact, reading his biography and, and, and uh, on Fleming is that he actually um, had a lot of American friends. And uh, he, 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 he said he enjoyed America very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was kind of the society that he kind of wanted to, to, to live in because he found British society so repressive, where um, the kind of the affairs and the scandals that he was involved in with England, upper class society there, were looked down upon greatly. In America, you know, that just stuff happened all the time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bond loses the money, 12 million francs, um, in the middle of chapter, what is it, middle of chapter 11, chapter 10? Uh, yeah. yeah, suddenly Bond felt the sweat on his palms like snow and sunshine, his capital had melted. And it's then that Felix Leiter's money comes through. Um, you know, John Betjeman, who was a poet, great British poet, one of my favorites, he, all, he was writing at the time, and he reviewed this novel. And one of the things he said is that part of what makes this book successful is the way that Ian Fleming seems to have mastered the suspenseful ending to a chapter that makes you want to read on to the next page. Yes. I think he has done a good job with that. It's a basic observation, but I think it's warranted. Yeah, but no, Fleming's, I think his chapter construction is actually quite brilliant because his chapters, his, his individual chapters, they don't kind of blend with all the other uh, other chapters. And, you know, like you think of like books nowadays where there's one ongoing story all the time and the chapter stops because, well, I guess I better put a chapter in here, you know. Um, there's There, to me, is a strong structure in how this book was written. And even though the, the, the critics of the book, even the editor before they published it, said that it was lacking suspense, I just don't think it was suspense people were familiar with. I think, I think it's just the book is so tightly written. Mm. And I'll go into this when I talk about the narrative, but as a person who appreciates film and, like, old-school film, like Hitchcock and whatnot, and... And how how old films had were just so tight in their screenplays and everything just worked so perfectly. Casino Royale to me is like that. Like it's it, it's very taut in its narrative design, and each chapter has a beginning and an end, and you can almost look at them as individual episodes. You know what I mean? As opposed to an over one whole flowing story. It's, yeah, that's a good observation. You certainly can. There is that kind of episodic um, kind of structure to it that that almost makes it feel like you're re- you're watching. Uh, a drama unfold in installments instead of a flow, but um, it's anyway. kind of, a, kind of a, like a, like like the modern page turner, you know, like you just yeah, want to go. So. It's your it's your it's your Grisham, it's your it's your Stephen King, it's 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 your uh, I guess to use a lesser example, it's your Dan Brown. You know what I mean? You want to see what happens next. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, after Bond beats Lachif. Now, in order to tell the difference between good and evil, we have manufactured two images representing extremes, representing the deepest black and the purest white, and we call them God and the devil. But in doing so, we have cheated a bit. God is a clear image. You can see every hair on his beard. But the devil, what does he look like? Bond looked triumphantly at Mathis. Mathis laughed ironically. A woman? It's all very fine, said Bond, but I've been thinking about these things, and I'm wondering whose side I ought to be on. I'm getting very sorry for the devil and his disciples, such as the good Lashif. The devil has a rotten time, and I always like to be on the side of the underdog. We don't give the poor chap a chance. There's a good book about goodness and how to be good and so forth, but there's no evil book about evil and how to be bad. 
The devil has no prophets to write his Ten Commandments and no team of authors to write his biography. His case has gone completely by default. We know nothing about him but a lot of fairy stories from our parents and schoolmasters. He has no book from which we can learn the nature of evil all in its forms, with, which, with parables about evil people, proverbs about evil people, folklore about evil people. All we have is a living example of the people who are least good or our, or our own in intuition. Mm, so, yeah. yeah, I like the I like Bond schooling on morality like that, and you can't help but see the world philosophy in that. I mean, that's coming not just from a writer and a character and a conscience. It's coming from a man who has experience dealing with evil, in, whether it's the Third Reich, whether it's you know warfare, whether it's death or whatever. I mean, you know that Fleming's writing from experience here. You can taste it. Yes, absolutely. It's it's very potent his feelings. Almost slightly a bit kind of fourth breaking the fourth wall in, in many ways. Yeah, here. I feel that too. I think that's a good observation. Yeah, but I, I feel though that this is kind of like the point where uh, this is kind of to me justifies Bond falling in love in, in that aspect with Vesper and wanting to marry her is that this whole is clearly that this experience has traumatized him and Fleming wants to convey that. But at the same time, he doesn't want to portray the masculinity of the character. So he makes him a bit more philosophical. He escapes into the fantasy idea of this philosophy of, of good versus evil. And it's really a gray world and it doesn't really matter, you know, so we might as well just leave that behind, let, let them do what they want. And, you know, and, and we, and we find passion where we want to. And maybe because of his masculinity, he, he just uh, being emasculated, he just felt that he wanted to do something different with his life, and Vesper was the way of uh, of doing that. And I kind of like, like, I think like Fleming wanted to be this person. At the same time, though, he also wanted to be happy in his own way. And I think, you know, this is him in Geneva, falling in love with that Swiss girl. You know, like it's it's him resisting everything that he was supposed to be and what he wants to be, and he wants to just just, just to let go. And of course, he is greatly, greatly um, be betrayed. Not this time by his by his uh, mother saying no to the engagement, but by the woman herself. And I and I know I'm kind of going into Freudian things here, but I think that is very uh, apparent. Uh, you know, now that uh, you know, if you have an idea of Fleming's life and mm -hmm. and, and in comparison to the novel itself. Yeah, we. we uh... Yeah, we saw eye to eye on, on adversary. You were a half point above me on uh, narrative. I was a half point above you on the girls. Uh, we balanced it four on locations and four on equipment. And so we've got both a score of 18 out of 25. So I think that's, that's pretty successful for a first shot out. Yeah, I think our own personal predilections kind of played a part there. But at the same time, they kind of even out in our, in our own way. So, you know... It's, it's, you know, similar passions that, you know, it runs on the same street, right? So in, in many ways, I think our scores might be kind of similar. It'll be interesting uh, in the next couple of novels to see how, how our reactions are. Yeah, it will. But I, I do think it's important that we, we do um, clarify for the purposes of posterity that we didn't read these together. We read them in isolation and we are coming at them as best as we can without thinking about the novels or sorry, the films that are connected to them. And yes. We will, at the end of all of this, talk about spin-offs and adaptations. I think we should do that, maybe just an episode to, to talk about adaptations and, and how well they worked, because by the time we reach the Roger Moore films, we're going to see that the only thing they used were the titles of the books. Uh, well, kind of, kind of. The Spy Who Loved Me? <laughs> yeah, uh, good example. But um, anyway, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Um, I think you've summed it up pretty well. Um, we got into Fleming. It, uh, that was a bit of a, somewhat of a chore, but I think a necessary background to establish. 
And then we, I think we talked about his first book in, in the best aspects that we can. People listening will probably be familiar with the movie and the plot. So, you know, of what the story was about. We essentially have a story here of, of, of Bond trying to find his place in the world. Um, and he ends up in the, in the end, um, because of his betrayal, his emasculation, uh, he ends up become harnessing himself in, and willing himself to be uh, a weapon against uh, a, 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 a veritable national and a um, personal threat. And this, I think this is what sets the Bond series running. Mm-hmm. 